Hey folks, and welcome back to a, another Blue Light podcast stroke YouTube video. Yes, I'm doing them both at the same time. So if you've not listened to or watched any of these podcasts or videos before, I'm Brendan. For the past 26 years now, I've been supporting people and helping people to succeed in police promotion boards and specialist interviews as a serving police officer. And for the past 10, 11 years now, it's getting on for 11 years, I've been supporting people in the police recruitment process. Hundreds of people have been promoted, got specialist interview success as a result of my support, and over 12,000, it's probably an easily and over 12,000 people are actually in the police service now as a result of my support. What a privilege to be able to help so many people. So in today's uh, podcast uh, video, I should just refer to it as podcast for the moment. And if you're watching this, you know what I mean. I'm going to take a look at um, how we can work out what the interview questions are going to be, uh, especially when it comes to promotion boards. But hang in there, folks, if you are in the police recruitment process, because there's something for you here as well. This isn't just about people who are looking to get promoted in the police. You'll find this useful, especially when it comes to questions like what are the challenges that the police face at this moment in time? What are our priorities? What sort of things do you think you'd be able to do to support us in achieving and hitting those priorities? So there's many forces do ask that question. Uh, Nottinghamshire asked that question as an example um, as part of their presentation to get into the Nottinghamshire Constabulary. Now, in terms of promotion boards, a lot of the questions you're going to get asked is how in the future as a sergeant, as an inspector, are you going to uh, create a performance culture, create an ethical culture, uh, achieve a collaborative approach with partners? Those sort of forward-facing, tricky, tricky questions that I know so many of you get concerned about. So we're going to take a look at that today. And uh, one of the things I like to do is I like to read stuff around policing. So there's a really interesting article in the Times newspaper um, from the uh, 15th of May 2022. It's now the 16th of May 2022. And it's entitled, We're Not the Thought Police, insists the new Chief Inspector of Constabulary. And it's referring to um, Andy Cook, who joined the police service in September 1985, actually on the 9th of September 1985. How do I know that? Well, he joined with me. We were in the same class as each other at uh, Bruce at the Police Training Centre, District Training Centre in uh, Bruce, Warrington. Andy was in Merseyside Police. Uh, I was in the Cheshire Constabulary back then. Um, eventually, Andy became the Chief Constable of Merseyside Police and then went on to become one of the inspectors of his constabulary and is now the Chief Inspector of Constabulary. So what he has to say is going to influence what Chief Constables are going to be thinking about in terms of focusing their resources. Now, uh, I've always said that whatever's important to the Chief Constable should be important to you too. Whether you agree with it or not, if your chief constable is saying this is important, this is a priority, then especially if you are a leader, a sergeant, an inspector or above, then that's your business as well. Whether you agree with it or not, it's kind of your business. You can have an opinion on it by all means, but it's still your job to drive that area of business forwards. 
And I think those are sort of questions, those are sort of things that are going to crop up on your boards. So what I did is I went through this article and started thinking, how can we use elements of this article in terms of Andy's thoughts on the future to determine what possible interview questions you might get in the future? So uh, bear with me, folks, whilst I go through this. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to take out little snippets. If, if you want the full article, then it's in the Times. Um, if you just look up uh, Google, not Thought Police, Chief Inspector of Constabulary, um, it should bring it up, or Andy Cook, uh, Times newspaper. Uh, Fiona Hamilton is the Crime and Security Editor. Um, so you could also look up things that she's published in the Times. So first of all, uh, the big headline is around, we're not the Thought Police. Um, What Andy wants the police to do is to focus on driving down crime uh, because the charge rates are at the lowest in more than 30 years. So, uh, and to avoid politics with a small P. Now, where the the, uh, we're not the Thought Police comes in is around how, uh, what he said here is we're not the Thought Police. We follow legislation. We follow the law. It's as simple as that. Policing is busy enough dealing with the serious offences that are going on, busy enough trying to keep people safe. So what he's saying basically is let's avoid the police um, recording too many hate incidents um, being the thought police. Because if it's not a crime, then why are you recording it? And the College of Policing have had to go back to the drawing board here because the advice they gave around recording hate crimes, no hate incidents, they're not crimes, hate incidents. They're kind of having to backtrack on that because of a stated case uh, and come up with new guidance. So that stated case was a while back now. Come on, College of Policing, get the guidance in place. Anyway, this is where I think uh, this article then starts to give you a bit of a guide as to what potential questions you could get at your board or the sort of things that you could talk about as as challenges uh, for the police service if you're asked that question at your recruitment interview. Now, in uh, 2015, the um, numbers, the percentages of crimes that actually um, resulted in a charge was 15%. So 15% of all crimes resulted in a charge. That's not looking at whether there's a conviction at court or not. This is just crimes charged or summonsed. Now, that was in 2015. Uh, 2022 we are now at just under six percent so it's less than half that less than half that now this i would suggest is a concern because this impacts on the legitimacy of the police if the police aren't seen to be doing their job very well then research has shown us that people will stop reporting crime to the police Uh, they will stop becoming witnesses to um, or putting themselves forward as witnesses to crimes that have taken place they'll stop uh, providing the police with information about antisocial behaviour and crime who's committing those sort of crimes and that will all lead to a drop in legitimacy in trust in the police Um, in case any of you are thinking god that's a lot of background noise there it is absolutely belting it down out there. So um, that's the sound of rain tap tapping on my office roof. So bear with me. Hopefully it's, uh, you can still hear me. Um, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. So um, it, it goes into a lot more detail about um, 
the different percentages depending on different types of crime types uh, but also Andy talks about look policing needs to ensure the public can have confidence that the police will take action against criminality whatever level that is um, serious criminality needs to be addressed but right through to neighborhood crimes burglaries and car theft as well I would add to that cybercrime because the detection rate and the charge rate for crimes, cyber type crimes, is absolutely woeful. Um, I can't remember the, the exact figures off the top of my head, but they are terrible, awful. Very few people, very few criminals actually ever get charged or brought to justice for uh, cyber type crimes, fraud type crimes. So I'm going to add that to it, Andy, if you don't mind, if you're listening to this, that'd be great. I welcome your your thoughts. After all, you are the chief inspector of constabulary, but I'd suggest that that's a concern as well. And that needs a, a new type of officer who's capable of dealing with the complexities of online fraud. Um, so I'm going to add that to it in terms of um, the concerns that members of the public are going to have and communities are going to have so anyway where is this going in terms of um what are you going to be able to do about it so i think one of the questions that you could get asked in a promotion board is about um ensuring quality investigations how in the future as a sergeant or an inspector are you going to ensure quality investigations are you going to ensure that the um charge rate detection rate improves uh, a culture of performance around those areas um, and simply having an answer which is about I'm going to monitor it and I'm going to give support to anyone who's struggling uh, too simplistic too simplistic so one of the things that we look at in the weekly webinars that I run for serving officers who are looking to get promoted and uh, check the link below for that guidance and the same for those of you who want to get promoted uh, check the links below um, one of the things um, we look at is uh, a model called appreciative inquiry as a method of enabling people to improve their performance enabling teams to improve their performance it's a method of focusing on what's working already as opposed to focusing on what's wrong and broken um, of course if someone's really really struggling then by all means support them but this goes back to this old saying that you you might be in charge but you're not in control you know for don't think for one moment just because you're a sergeant or an inspector that you are in control of your teams they will decide on their own destiny and as individuals they will decide on their own destiny as a team they will decide on their own destiny they will decide on how to go about doing things you can just hope to nudge and influence them um I know some of you are going to be saying, well, it's a disciplined service. Surely people should do what they're told to do. Well, I was in that disciplined service for three decades, and uh, more than half of that was as a sergeant and as an inspector. And I, I worked out that, actually, especially as an inspector, I, I wasn't in control for most of the time, and neither were my peers. It's the sergeants that had more control. Um, and even they were not fully in control of a lot of their officers. So, look, whenever you involve people, these the dynamics become really, really complicated. So, and especially if you focus on what's broken and what's wrong all the time. You know, I, I used to get these figures all the time sent to me by email that we're not performing in this. Uh, we would see the the red, amber, green charts to show that we're we're red in so many different areas, and that was the focus all the time. I used to sometimes 
um, question actually in some of those performance meetings. You know, it, it, there's some, a lot of green going on here. <laughs> you know, we're we not trying to work out why that green is happening as opposed to focusing on why there's loads of red. Why are we underperforming? It was always, always, always a focus. Rarely, if ever, did anyone say, do you know what we're going to do in this meeting? We're going to focus on what's working. We're going to find out what's working and see if we can do more of it and actually duplicate it and triplicate it and times it by five. And so that's the basis of appreciative inquiry. It's a model where we take a look at, uh, first of all, our vision for the future. So in the future, in a, in a culture, in a team that's performing brilliantly in terms of um, crimes resulting in a charge or quality investigations, what would that look and feel like? You know, so we're going to describe it. We're going to describe it. And then we're going to look at... Um, the, the team itself working out how it's going to get there, how it's going to achieve that vision, and then what steps need taking by who. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that. I've just given you a sort of very simplistic version. Um, it involves lots of team dynamics. Uh, it involves asking the right questions. It involves you as a leader taking a bit of a step back and allowing others to get going. So you're, you are enabling as opposed to getting people to do what you ask them to do you are enabling them to take charge of their destiny in terms of um, that culture of performance um, more about that in the webinars come and join those webinars where we actually practice these sort of questions and the answers that you provide when they are a little bit more refreshing and different and they do work you know this is a model that's work that works it's not just based on brendan's wild ideas there's a ton of research out there around uh, models like appreciative inquiry and a lot of big, big businesses and organizations use this model. And I know a lot of government departments use this model as well, because I know people who are the coaches and the mentors for those government departments. Um, I'm not going to mention the name of the organizations, but they do an awesome job in terms of driving performance, driving um, cultural change. You can't just make people do cultural change. They've got to want to do it. So... You want to know more? Come and join those uh, webinars. Uh, like I said, the, the links below. This moment in time, they're at, what is it? Three pounds thirty-three a month to get all of this guidance um, and all the recordings of the previous webinars as well. Awesome stuff. Um, so I think this is important and you're going to get asked questions about uh, ensuring quality investigations, ensuring improvements in detection rates. Why? Because the government, whether you agree with them or not, has given the police service an extra 20,000 police officers. Actually, I'm going to take the word extra out because I don't agree with that neither. And no, they're not additional because this is just replacing the officers who were taken away from the police service over the past decade or so due to austerity. And actually, I think the 20,000 uplift is going to take the police service to about uh, 1,000 less than it had 10 or so years ago. So it's not really an increase at all. It's just rebalancing everything that was lost before. But what that's going to result in is a huge number of officers, a real imbalance in terms of uh, officers with very little service out on the front line. So these are the ones who are going to be attending all of these incidents. And these are the ones that are going to have to ensure that there's a quality investigation that is um, established right at the very, very beginning of the investigation. 
once it's an hour old if that quality investigation is not in place then forget it you know the golden hour principle is one that really really does exist you've got to get everything lined up in that first hour and if you wait a day for the the investigation to really start moving forwards and become a quality investigation you've lost it i know there's exceptions but generally that rule that golden hour rule it, it does work. So you've got all of these very, very young in-service officers who are going to determine the trajectory, the um, the direction of travel of, in terms of things like detection rates. And I think that's really important. This isn't just about targets. This is about something that's really important to members of the public. I don't want my police force where I live in North Yorkshire to be absolutely uh, absolute duffers in terms of detecting crime. It's part of your job. It's part of your role. I expect you to detect crime. I expect you to charge people with crimes. And I expect the percentage rate to be a lot more than 6%, especially as if back in 2015, it was 15%, more than double that. And if it's the worst rate it's been in 30 years, I expect a return on all of those officers being um, joining the police service. And I know there's going to be a lot of people saying, oh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But that's what I expect. As a member of the public, that's what I expect. So that's why I think that those sort of questions are going to be really popular ones on promotion boards in the future. Is that making sense? All right, let's see what else Andy had to say. Um... Yeah, I'm not going to... Uh, no, I'm not going to cover that, because that's all about that thought police thing. Um, ah, right, okay. So, uh, Andy Cook said that officers were operating in a complex environment in which they picked up the slack from other agencies. So I think that's a challenge as well, uh, in terms of a collaborative approach with other agencies. And a question that I think you'd certainly get on a promotion board is, how in the future will you ensure a collaborative approach with partner agencies? And again, in our webinars, we look at uh, ways you can do this from setting up working groups, making sure you've got the right sort of people on working groups. I always used to like think, I, I still think about the four C's, uh, people who are capable, who are connected, they care enough to act, and they are committed to take action. I don't want people just turning up in the working group because I've been told to attend. I want those four things. And they're based on all sorts of bits of research that I picked up over the years. But I think it's kind of, I kind of like it. The f people who are the four C's, capable, connected people, they care enough to act and they're committed to take action. So um, we'll also take a look at things like, you know, how are you going to invest in your emotional bank account? How are you going to get your officers to invest in your emotional bank account? This is about understanding the needs and the problems of other agencies and um, before they even ask for help you're out there saying how can I help you how can I support you let me spend half a day with you so I can really understand the sort of problems that you're having and then from there um, offering them help and support before they ask for it this is about investing in the emotional bank account so when it comes to you needing assistance and support of that agency, they are willingly going to give it because you know their first names, you've got a rapport with them, you've got a relationship with them, you can just phone them up and they're going to help you. And why are they going to help you? Because they will remember that time when you invested in them, when you helped support them without them even needing to ask for that help. 
you are in credit in terms of the emotional bank account. So we take a look at all of those sort of things um, and more in terms of how to develop a team that is truly, truly collaborative. Uh, and this worked brilliantly for one of my uh, clients who went for promotion just recently. He actually he had two weeks to implement something um, as an acting sergeant and he talked about it as bored and he completely blew away the assessors and it was just one simple little thing that he did in terms of how his team related to partner agencies just one simple thing one simple thing and it made a massive amount of difference massive amount of difference so um there's other talking here about uh, police officers facing more, more bureaucracy. So I know I've got a couple of superintendents or su potential superintendents on the Enforce Advancement Group. That's where we host all of the weekly practice webinars. And so one of the things I'll be looking to do there as a superintendent is to reduce bureaucracy, have a working group to reduce bureaucracy. Because I remember Louise Casey, who was, uh, she invented the ASBO all of those years ago. She was part of uh, Tony Blair's team um, when they were starting to look at crime and disorder and antisocial behaviour in the late 90s. Uh, very, very influential. Look her up, Louise Casey. I've heard her speak at a conference once where someone, a senior police officer, was complaining about the amount of government bureaucracy that is fed to the police. And she made this very good point to say that there's no one in government actually telling you to do this bureaucracy. No one in government is demanding you do all of this bureaucracy. You do this to yourselves. You're very good at it. You're awesome at it. This was like oh, 20 years ago, I heard her speak. 20 years ago when she was saying, actually, you as a police service, you're brilliant at creating your own bureaucracy. And I've seen it over the years. Let's create another form. Let's create another return sheet. Let's create another layer of something that officers have got to do the boxes that have to be ticked well do all of those boxes really need to be ticked do all of those returns really need submitting is all of that information really needed is it actually doing anything other than just sitting in someone's filing cabinet and enabling people to produce a load of stats which no one actually uses so that's one of the things i'd be looking to do if i was going to be a superintendent is cutting down on that bureaucracy i've heard um Senior officers like Mike Barton, uh, Chief Constable of Durham Constabulary years ago, talking about this exact same thing, reducing bureaucracy, um, removing policies that just strangled officers' innovation and creativity. I remember at a conference, um, him once talking about how he's got a policy destruction team. It's him. He talked about it being him. When people quoted policy to him, he just said, give me that policy, and he'd just tear it up and stick it in a bin. It's right, it doesn't exist anymore. So um, do we need uh, all the bureaucracy that is always, always referred to? And is it the government that's really setting it or are the police the victims of their own very capable ability to design their own bureaucracy? So, um, right, where else are we? Um, in terms of where I think HMIC inspections are going to go in the future, um, Rates of solving crimes such as burglaries, robberies and shoplifting, as well as complex crimes such as sexual offences, were simply too low. That's where inspections are going to go in the future. Uh, among other things, but I'm quite sure that's where things are going to go. So, um, 
ultimately, if the public wants the police to do everything, they'll have to pay for it. There will always be prioritisation in relation to policing. Uh, so I'd expect that to be a possible question at a board. Uh, how in the past have you prioritised tasks? And I'd make sure it's at the sort of level of um, sergeant or inspector, the rank that you're going for, not the rank that you've been in. And also, uh, that is a popular question on recruitment boards as well. Uh, tell me about a time when you've had to prioritise a number of tasks or uh, tell me about a time when you've had to plan and prioritise a number of different things and how did you decide which ones were most important? Um, so my issue is that we need to ensure that prioritisation properly reflects what the policing service is there for, which is keeping people safe and ensuring the people who commit offences are brought to justice. So there we go. We go back to the detections. We go back to charging people again and summoning people. The keeping people safe, though, um, I, I would have added a little bit more to this. And this, I think, could be the focus of your own inquiry in terms of preparing yourself for promotion. Because it was Sir Robert Peel talked years ago about how um, it's important to bring... He's the founder of the British Police Service, by the way. In 1829, he came up with the Peelian principles, look them up. And he talked about um, why it's important not just to detect crime, but it's more important to actually prevent it. And that's one of the things that stuck with me all the way through my career, that um, what's more important is to prevent the crime ever happening. What's more important, what the biggest challenge is, is how do you get those people those individuals who are now two years old but you know the sort of family that they've been born into you can almost predict where that family is going to influence them and where they're going to take that child and you can almost predict the path that that child is going to take look up adverse childhood experiences lots of research there which actually demonstrates and proves beyond all reasonable doubt that if you've got several adverse childhood experiences behind you there's a really high likelihood that you're going to commit crime you're going to go to prison and then you're going to come out and maybe have a family and it's all going to repeat itself now something's got to be done about that that just can't keep going it's expensive to society in terms of a financial cost it's expensive in terms of the misery that it causes communities and it's expensive in terms of a, a, a waste of someone's promise as a human. And so I've always felt very strongly about this, that we should be working collaboratively with other organisations and members of the community, taking a very much an asset-based approach um, to problem-solving, um, seeing ourselves less as public servants and more as citizen enablers. And I'm not just talking about research here. I consider myself a practitioner in this field. As a neighbourhood inspector, that's the approach that my teams took for several years, that we are the enablers of citizens rather than public servants. And this goes all the way back to Sir Robert Peel talking about the police of the public and the public of the police. The police just being members of the public who are paid full-time to carry out a role which is incumbent on all citizens in the interests of community welfare and existence. So I think that's a challenge as well, and perhaps Andy talked about it. It wasn't reported on because it's not, you know, it's not sexy in inverted commas. It's not the sort of latest headline. You know, the police are, as well as detecting crime and uh, charging offenders, are also going to enable communities to be the best versions of themselves they can be. 
so that in 10, 20 years' time, young children who are two years old will not be in prison. They will be doing something more productive in their lives. And this community will be a safe, happy place for people to live in. There's one of our greatest challenges. Actually, um, Andy did allude to this years ago, a couple of, uh, last year, I think it was, before he retired from the police. And he was accused of being, let me just find it, um, woke, I think it was. Yeah, he's been branded woke by some tabloids uh, because he talked, he actually talked about this. Um, he was accused of a soft approach after an interview last year in which he said most criminals were not inherently bad, but had chosen the wrong path because of a lack of opportunity, deprivation and other societal factors. This requires a focus. This absolutely requires a focus. And, and there is our challenge. And there's a challenge for yourselves, potential sergeants and inspectors. How are you going to balance the need to tackle serious and organised crime with enabling and supporting people to develop their own community? If you do it for them, it's not going to work. If it's their idea and you just enable them, then it's got a lot of promise. It, it's going to work. And this is really tough, this. You know, a lot of work we did as, as a neighbourhood team was about tackling organised criminality. You know, we would uh, take great joy in destroying and dismantling in a legal and ethical way organised crime syndicates. Uh, I'd loved to do that. That was the easy bit. The hard bit is dealing with the vacuum that's left behind. Because unless you enable that community to become a stronger, more cohesive place, the community where they are active, all that happens is people come in to take the places so you can send some people to prison within hours uh, they've been replaced they've been replaced and so that's a real challenge that how do you take that vacuum that's left behind when you destroy and dismantle an organized crime syndicate or parts of it um and how do you replace that illegitimate leadership within that community with legitimate leadership so there's a there's a deep question for you at a promotion board. Um, right, what else does Andy talk about? I need to wrap up soon because this is going to be a long podcast, this one. But hopefully it's been helpful for you. Um, yeah, at the top of uh, the agenda, policing culture. Uh, so this is definitely going to be a question in future promotion boards about how in the future, as a um, sergeant or an inspector, you're going to ensure an ethical culture in your team and expect lots of questions as well on recruitment uh, boards recruitment panels about uh, integrity doing the right thing challenging inappropriate behavior and asking questions uh, scenario based questions about how would you deal with this situation and they'll present to you a situation where there's an officer demonstrating racism misogyny sexist behavior um he talks uh, andy talks about the majority of individuals um, the, who are the, you know, the, the pockets of bad behaviour have been caught by their colleagues because of counter-corruption techniques. Yeah, I think that's great, but you should also be caught because officers call them out. And there's a lot of things that we've already talked about in the Enforce Advancement Group about um, uh, new and innovative and more creative ways of ensuring an ethical culture. Again, one that's not driven by because I tell you to, because remember... You might be in charge, but you're not in control. Um, one that's more based on um, enabling the team members to sort of set their own standards and develop their own standards. And you as a leader, using examples of things that are current 
and um, almost debriefing them with your team and using them as an opportunity to learn from those things that have happened as opposed to I'll set my expectations to the team. That's not going to be a good answer at an interview board. And again, um, I'll end on this because it's something I'm always banging on about on Twitter. Um, Andy expressed concerns about vetting for recruitment. Yeah, we're going to get a huge number of officers. Um, in about two years' time, I think um, about f- just under 50% of all police officers are going to have less than five years' service. We can't deny that. So by 2024, 2025, uh, less than, um, uh, le- just less than 50% of all police officers will have less than five years' service. And um, some of the vetting, I've seen some really good vetting by forces and other forces that I'm not quite sure if they're on their game in terms of vetting. Um, especially, um, and Andy, I agree with you here, I've been talking about this on Twitter for so long now, it, it, what Andy says, it does concern me that an individual could become a police officer without actually meeting anyone in that organisation. Although there's pressure to hire large numbers of new officers, it should not come at the expense of standards. Well, it already has. More than several forces out there, you can join those forces without ever speaking to anyone. The first time you speak to anyone, apart from sharing your inside leg measurement, is on your first day in the police. That can't be right. That has got to be a massive concern. There's going to be so many police officers who are joining, they're new in service, they've got some interesting expectations, they've got some interesting standards, and they're going to need strong, strong support and strong, strong leadership from potential sergeants and inspectors in the future to ensure that they get through their first few years without too many scandals there will be scandals and in a year or two my prediction is um, newspaper articles will be looking back on certain scandals saying this individual managed to join the police without speaking to anyone is it any surprise that this individual and others went on to do Now, there's going to be some horrific things that happen. There's going to be some scandals. This is my prediction. I don't want to make this prediction. But if you're going to recruit people as police officers without ever speaking to them, it's insane. It's just madness. But it is what it is. So what are you going to do as a leader to ensure that those officers um, become capable, competent, efficient, effective? some real challenges for those of you who are going to be sergeants and inspectors in the future come and join us come and join us on our weekly webinars where we focus not on trying to fix everything that's broken the models we use are things like asset-based approaches appreciative inquiry emotional bank account setting up working groups um, all of those sort of things they all have as their ethos a focus on what is working as opposed to an obsession with what's not working if you focus on the reds all the time you'll just get game playing you'll get officers game playing the targets i can turn i mean i know this i used to be one of them i can take any red target and i can turn it amber within a week and green within another week and the world won't have changed all i've done is found a way to ethically not sure about legally yes i've found a way to interestingly uh, manipulate the targets so if you keep focusing on reds all you're going to get is a depressed team um you're going to be seen as the big stick all the time and morale will be poor we focus on something else 
and it works because so many people are getting promoted as a result of using these techniques so come and join us come and join us anyway folks i hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast um i know it's a long one but there's a lot to cover see all you need to do is just get an article like this one and start thinking it through what's the future going to look like for the service well Andy's there. Who would have thought, eh, drinking mucky beer back in September 1985, that there he'd be? I think he's done a great job. Well, well done, Andy. You deserve that position. Uh, you really, really do. So, uh, well, well done. And and think about retiring one day. <laughs> Honestly, it's great. Actually, what's retirement? <laughs> what's retirement? All right. Anyway, folks, um, I'll look forward to catching up with you at the next one. If you've got any questions, of course, then post them below, whether it's on YouTube or Facebook or message me or email me or whatever. Phone me up. Um, love to hear your comments. Uh, love to hear where you want the next podcast to go. And I'll catch up with you very soon. Stay safe. Bye bye for now.